Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. For over 40 years, Jack M. Sasson has been studying and commenting on the cuneiform archives from Mari on the Euphrates River, especially those from the age of Hammurabi of Babylon. Among Mari's wealth of documents, some of the most interesting are letters from and to kings, their advisors and functionaries, their wives and daughters, their scribes and messengers, and a variety of military personnel. In distilling a lifetime of study and interpretation, Sasson hopes to welcome readers into the life of a world entombed for four millennia, making the realities of ancient life tangible, giving it a human perspective that is at once instructive and entertaining. All that and more on today's show as we speak with Jack Sasson about his recent publication called From the Mari Archives, an anthology of old Babylonian letters, published by Eisenbrowns in 2015. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Michael Morales, your host. Jack M. Sasson is Worthen Professor Emeritus of Judaic and Biblical Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also Professor Emeritus at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's edited the Bible and Ancient Near East pages of the Journal of the American Oriental Society from 1976 through 1984 and again in 1996 through 2000. He was chief editor of Scribner's Civilizations of the Ancient Near East, a four-volume reference set that appeared in 1995 and that has received many awards since then. His publications include commentaries on the biblical books of Ruth, Jonah, and Judges. Jack Sasson, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your book? But basically, here are the points. I was born in Aleppo, Syria, that sad city now, which is being terrorized and destroyed. And it's just unbelievably sad because, in fact, for many, many reasons, including that it is the oldest continuously lived city on the face of the earth. Now, of course, some people are going to dispute that when they hear it, but there's a lot of truth to it, plus or minus. In any case, I was very young when I left it. I was about five, six years old, and my family moved to Beirut. So we are now talking. I am moving there in the, just after World War II. And uh, we lived in Beirut until uh, 13, 14. We had to be there to wait, await our turn to come to America because in those days, very few people were allowed to come to America from Asia. So we waited about eight, nine years. I can't remember how many. But then we came here and we lived in Brooklyn. There was a very large tribe, if you might call it that, of Jews from Syria, especially from Aleppo in Brooklyn. And we joined back with them. Uh, sometimes later, I went to public schools. I went to public colleges and uh, went to Brandeis University where I got my degree. At that time, I also pursued studies in Islamic studies in Islam but chose to write on the topics that dealt more with the ancient Near East. As a result, 
when I got my first job at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, they needed someone to give background to the Bible. And since I specialized in that, they hired me. It was a wonderful relationship, lasted about 20, 33 years, actually. And then I, I was invited to come to Vanderbilt, where I taught some wonderful students for about 16 years. And now I'm retired for the second time. And here I am. <laughs> Anything else I should be I, I should be telling you about. How about a word about your family? Oh, my family. My family is just absolutely wonderful. If you think about it, on my mother's side, we were Syrian. On my father's side, we were Iraqi. And uh, we uh, came to America to the Syrian part of the family. I have lots of brothers and sisters, uh, mostly now in New York, but some in Canada too. And we keep in touch, of course. And uh, the community is very strong. And especially when my mother was still alive, I'd go there open my Now that's still only on happy occasion. Mm. And and it's just a wonderfully rich and lively community. Right. Now I have I'm married. I have three sons. They are not into ancient Near East. <laughs> one of them, one of them is a, uh, a psychology professor in Texas. Another one is a specialist. I call it marine biology, but he corrects me all the time. He's in a postdoc, and a third one in New York who is doing a wonderful job working for some. Internet technical technique stuff of material. I don't know exactly exactly what it is, but he is a, he has children and so do others. My wife also writes on uh, shakers. She writes on American religious history. She's also retired, but she's always doing something or another. She has published number four. So, Jack, introduce us to Mari. Where is it on the map? When did they live? What's their historical context? Well, okay, but, you know, it's getting more complicated now that the whole map of the Middle East is confused. But if we go back a few years, when uh, there were frontiers, uh, there, the Euphrates River that uh, goes into Iraq, if you move up with it as if you are going northward, you hit the frontier, the Syrian-Iraqi frontier, and just north of it, there is this little tell called Tel Hariri underneath it was the great city of Mari. It was forgotten for a very long time, even though there were some people who settled on it and so forth, but it was forgotten for a very long time until the 1930s when someone, the usual story, a peasant trying to dig a grave for his child, came across eyes that looked up from under the ground, and when he cleared it up, it was a statue. Wow. At that time, the French, yeah, the French were in control of Syria, so they were called to look into it. And sure enough, they, after digging just a few seasons, they realized that they had hit the fabulously well-known city of Mari. The reason why it was well-known is because it was mentioned in a great number of documents we already had, but Hammurabi of Babylon, the famous lawgiver, uh, from Babylon had mentioned it as among the cities he had conquered. So we knew uh, that it should be somewhere where it is, but only finding it and excavating it and discovering under the soil a palace that was absolutely huge, and, and something like eight acres, 400 rooms. And in it, in the, some of the rooms, they found lots of tablets. 
which of course are very important if you want to really reconstruct precisely the daily life. Uh, so we have the archaeology of the palace, we have the archaeology of the cell, a great number of temples, but I am interested, I am a specialist mostly in looking at the documents that were found there. And uh, eventually those documents came up to about 17,000, uh, and uh, among which you had about maybe 3,000, over 3,000 letters. So there were lots to work on. Now, it's important to know why the document has survived. And that is because they were written on clay. And clay, when it's dried in the sun, can become very strong and keep, keep the writing that was on it. But then if a palace is burnt, then they would be kept even longer. As a result of that, when the city of Mari was destroyed, it's not clear why and under what circumstances, but let us say by Hammurabi of Babylon, because he was the person in charge with emptying the palace. Afterwards, he had took away most of the things that were valuable to him. He left a lot of tablets that were not as valuable to him. And when they put the city to, tor to a torch, uh, lots of things were preserved. Uh, the French, when they excavated and they came across the one room, they found in it an unbelievable number of tablets. And once they started reading them, they were just amazed and they were able to to use them to say that this is a city that lived around 1750 to 1800 BCE, plus or minus. And that was very, very early and it was very nice to have that, that collection. And what's the language of Mari? The language of the tablets. Now, Mari was a very multicultural city. It had people from various ethnic backgrounds speaking a variety of languages. You know, the further you go back in time, the more you have a greater and greater number of languages. It, as time progresses, we get into our own time, they just die out because other languages take over. So at one time, there were probably many, many, many languages and dialects there, but the, most, the one that they used to, to write to preserve what they wanted to preserve was Akkadian, which is a Semitic language. It's part of the family of languages to which Hebrew belongs, but of course Hebrew is a, quite different. If someone who's a Hebrew comes to visit in Mari, uh, he will understand a word or two, but he might as well uh, just uh, be you know, talking to Chinese. He will have a very hard time <laughs> understanding it. Still, they belong to the same language group. And uh, they used it to write on clay, but there are also texts in other languages. A few texts in Hurrian, a language that is still uh, being uh, recreated and deciphered, but although we know lots about it by now, uh, there were things in, there were words in these texts that uh, betrayed a West Semitic language, which is closer to Hebrew than uh, Akkadian, but not close enough. And uh, so there's a great number of languages that are there. And they are written, as I said, on clay tablets. Uh, one of the biggest and most interesting aspects of it is uh, how did a person ascribe when he's called to come uh, to take down the dictation and know what size tablet to take with him. Tablets can be as little as, let's say, four or five inches 
uh, or as much as um, three, four times larger. I didn't know what kind of tablet to go to go with. And uh, as we got to know more and more about the Mali tablet, we began to understand how if the king summons you in the middle of the night because he wants to dictate, you didn't go around taking your tablet with you and made sure to have the right size. You just came down and took notes and you made a memorandum. And then afterwards, you went back to your room, to your office, and actually outside, you need light. Uh, and you began to reconstruct from memory what the notes that you had taken. So whenever we have a tablet, although it still has the, the, the flavor of the personality of the person who dictated it, in general, we have to remember that scribes had a major role in giving us the final aspect of that text, and we should not forget that. But uh, this is only for letters. You know, the Mari tablets, the most amazing part about them is the administrative text that I don't represent much in my book. Uh, administrative texts are the stuff of bureaucracy. They tell you how things came into the palace, how they went out, what was done with them. We have text that tells you the daily expenditure for the table of the king, how much food was, was entered for about a great number of years. We can tell you what he ate on the night of April the 14th, of the 14th even though we cannot reconstruct exactly, and we know the ingredient, we cannot reconstruct the, the, the final product, more or less. But it's amazing how much information we have. We know when the king ate at home and when he was outside. We know when the king had visitors and when he didn't. And we know something about the banquets that took place because of all these texts. So administrative texts are extremely important, but my book was not represent, giving much of a representation of them. You cannot understand a culture without going to the administrative text. Now, how long have you been engaged with Mari translating these texts? My wife thinks before I was born. But in fact, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, she's tired of that. Uh, but in fact, in fact, uh, I did not begin until my final years as a graduate student when uh, I decided to commit to ancient Near Eastern studies rather than to Islamic studies. But this has been going on for a while because we're talking about 1963-64, so about 50 years. And lucky for me in that uh, at the time when I was uh, working uh, on the Mari tablets, there were lots of tablets published already, but not that many comparatively a young man who is halfway uh, hardworking, not that I was, but halfway hardworking would be able to uh, do a lot with them so that up until the 1980s, uh, it was a rather cultured way of publication. Every few years, we would have a book with about, published with about 110, 120 tablets, and you can digest them and catalog them and file them and do all sorts of things with them. But then came the 1980s when a new team uh, in France, took over Jean-Marie Durand and uh, Dominique Chapin and others. And then the flood opened up, and suddenly we finally realized that 17,000 tablets is a lot of material. So in the past 30 years or so, I would say uh, the greatest 
portion of our capacity to understand this culture came to be put together, unfortunately, because so many texts were being published at the same time, not only in monographs, but also in footnotes, in, 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 in articles, in uh, all sorts of things. And not everyone participated in them in the same way as they did before. And so you need someone to translate, that is to bring them to the attention of people. In France, of course, it's done all the time because the French have a wonderful publication um, records, uh, scholars, a good number of them. But if you are an English speaker, there is only the two, three items that you can go to among them. A scholar in California named Heimpel who collected a number of letters and translated them. But generally, uh, what I try to do now is to give a sense of the total culture, not by giving you everything, but by giving you a sampling of most things, of course, not administrative, but um, letters. And that's what I tried to do in this book. And I hope uh, it succeeds to uh, interest people in the wealth of information that we get from a city-state, you know. Uh, we are so used to archaeology, uh, let's say, in, the, in Israel, where every time they find something with about three lines in it, the whole world gets excited, which is nice and very important, but at the same time here we have lines and lines and lines and lines, giving us information that we had never even imagined, recreating a world that we had no idea about sometimes. And uh, so someone should really look into it, and I hope that people will find the book that I put together is a helpful way for them to enter that world. A great window into life at Mari is found by reading their documents, which, thanks to your translations, we can read in English now. Your anthology includes letters related to kingship, to administration, warfare, society, religion, and culture. Can you read for us some examples and give us a taste of the world they open up? Well, you know, uh, there's so many ways of entry, but let me just give in one approach, because a lot of people would like to know something about what kind of style these letters were like. In general, the letters would be really statements between one scribe to another. If you are a king, you have scribes, you have actually private secretaries, and if you are another king somewhere else or someone who needs to write to, to anyone, you'd go to a scribe. So the letters begin by saying, to such and such a person, speak. Thus says such and such a person. In other words, the correspondence is not you pick up the letter and you start reading it. People could not read these texts on their own easily. First of all, the script was much more complicated than our own script. It was not alphabetic, but it was syllabic. And in order for you to have the fluency to be able to read, you really need to have a lot of practice and training to do it. Okay, so the letters are supposedly between scribes, and when the scribe receives this letter, he begins intoning what is in it. Now, what's interesting about the Mari letters is that some of them are very short. Let us say um, four or five lines, hello, how are you? Uh, 
uh, I have been doing such and such. Thank you. Uh, please give my regard to such and such. I mean, basic. But some of them are unbelievably long, full of details about events. The Mari writers and the scribes, uh, when they started composing in these letters, they used a prose that was so supple, so versatile, with a lot of humor, with a lot of anecdotes. They did not just say hello, goodbye. They wanted to take time out to describe this and describe that, such that in some of the ways, when you read some of these letters, you have the impression that you're reading biblical prose. Mm. Like, if you read biblical narratives, not the poetry, of course, but just the narrative, the stories of Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, and so forth, uh, the writer takes time to let you make your own mind about what is being shaped. And for some reason, that is really magical. It's very hard to understand why some people have that gift. Uh, the Mari writers and the Mari dictator, the person dictating, I shouldn't say dictator, but dictating, the person dictating just wanted to give a sense of fullness to his message or her message. As a result, a lot of the letters are full of touches. Uh, you ask for an example. Uh, let me see if I can uh, give you this one here. This is a letter just to give you a notion of how they went into detail. This is a letter that a person who worked for a king away somewhere in the north wrote back to the king telling him about some information, some details, some incident that he should know about. Now, as I will tell you later, uh, the king had many, many diplomats. And he had hundreds of uh, uh, messengers carrying on messages here and there and everywhere. So this person who is away representing the king is writing the king about some incident that he had heard. So I'm reading from the middle of it. It, is, it tells you about a sheikh, uh, an elder of a tribe, whose name is Haman. And uh, he is trying to tell us that someone whom the king thought was his vassal actually, in fact, is corroborating with an enemy of the king. Mm. So I'm in the middle of the letter, and I'm continuing. I'm quoting. The next day, to affirm a declaration that he had heard, that, that declaration being, People from one of your vassals are going to your enemy bearing tribute. The official stood three men behind wooden double doors, and he gives you their name, Dada, Yashublim, and Yaktunael. He summoned that sheik and began to question him as follows. Go back over the words that you spoke to me yesterday. But this sheik told the official, you, if, I, if I reveal this conversation to anyone, if you reveal it to anyone, I can no longer live, but will die. The official right away took a sacred oath for his sake, saying, I swear not to reveal your words to anyone. Because he took a sacred oath for his sake, the sheik went over the word he spoke the previous day, saying, 
for two years now, a vassal of the king has been continually beholden to an enemy of the king. The three men could each hear these words from behind wooden double doors. And then the text continues, which I'm just going to stop reading because it gets intricate. So the point about it here is that this person who's revealing the treachery of someone, it doesn't just tell the king, such and such a person is a traitor. He tells you a story and he tells you how people stood behind the door and how they heard and so forth and so on. He just take, takes the king uh, into his recreating the whole scene as if visualizing it. When you get Mali letters like that, so many of them, full of these details, you just are able to use their eyes in a way and recreate that world and see them moving around as if you are watching not a movie but a theater. Some of the ways are just magical and uh, I just hope people just take a chance to take a bit of time to just look around. Not all the letters will read like that, but some of many of them will and they will be full of very, very, very amazing little living moments and in them full of them. That reminds one of the repetition found so often in Hebrew narrative, like in Judah's dialogue with Joseph in Genesis 44. And exactly, exactly that. And you know what's interesting is that if you take the Joseph narrative and you hear what Judah is telling um, Joseph, whom he did not know who he was, but he's telling him something or another, you, you, you compare what, what happened before and what Judah is telling you see slightly different moments that account the same way with the Mari letters. When you're reading them, no one ever quotes a person the same way as they had said. They always have a tendency to just touch it up a bit, liven it up a bit, sharpen it up a bit, so that quotation in the ancient words are nothing like our own days, where you have to make sure that you have the period in the right place and the comma in the right place. No! They wanted to get you interested and excited and involved. So in the many of the letters, especially letters that are exchanged between the king and his daughters, uh, just this little playfulness in which they're trying to get the person to listen to them, they just don't say things wouldn't, they just don't, they don't tell the facts as they are. They try to get the person to be involved with the facts, to live with them, and to carry on the notion that is being presented with them, you see? So it is really a fascinating thing. Have any other examples you can share with us? Well, there are lots of other things, but let me just give you uh, some notion about uh, one of the first chapters. The first chapter is the chapter on kingship. As it happens, it's the longest chapter because we uh, these are palace archives. And when palace archives, come to us, generally they tell us about palace life and they tell us about the elite in the palace, the king, the queen, and whatever you have. So in this kingship, when you get these letters and you just try to put them together, you discover a lot about how kings got to be where they are and how they made a life for themselves. For example, I have a number of letters that tell us how people come to power because you to reconstruct those days, those were as perhaps not as brutal as our own days, but they were pretty uh, chaotic days. 
uh, in the 1800s, uh, still things were in a, in a flux. Uh, all the uh, dynasties and all the city-states had collapsed, and a new group of people were coming in to take to reshape the, the, that world. So a lot of movement, a lot of chaos. I call it a Serengeti plane almost, where you have predators. These are the top guys trying to get themselves vassal to do what they want. So you'll constantly have this game between people who is going to be in power, who's going to lose power, and people don't last too long on the throne. Mm. Uh, in in one city-state, for example, in the 15-year period of the archive life, under one king named Zimmerlin, we have about five or six kings. So you have usurpers, and that term itself is not so good because there is no one who's really legitimate, really. The way you get you gain legitimacy is as follows, and that's what the letter will show you. First of all, you take over the city, and it's not that easy because the city, especially a main city, will be very heavily fortified. It will have walls. It will have a moat sometime around it, you see? So, okay, let us, and you, you have to bring, you have besieged it. I'll come back to it perhaps a bit later. But once you take over the city, you, the first thing you do is you don't get rid of the population. You don't get rid of the people who are bureaucrats. You need the bureaucrats. It's not like today when a president gets elected, all the bureaucrats are out and they put new ones. No, these guys are. And the bureaucrats are wonderful in ancient Mali. They don't care who it is on top. Uh, they just do their jobs. They just function from one place to another. That's how you have continuity. And then I collect a good number of letters to give you a sense of how the king ha- creates his own wealth. You, you, when you take over a palace, generally, uh, the person who was before you very often has absconded with it and emptied it and taken over, ran away before you even appear. Huh? Mm-hmm. So you've got to read Furbish everything. So how does it, a king get to, to create for themselves a court and to create for themselves wealth? I give a good number of letters to show you that they gained uh, their wealth from a variety of ways. One of them, of course, is they pillaged the, the previous king if he's left anything. But um, the other way is, of course, you, 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 you take some of the people that you have conquered and you Trade them, you do, you sell them, whatever. But more important than that, you start uh, imposing tribute on certain people. You start expecting gifts to be given to you by the high and the mighty. Uh, slowly but surely, you establish a rapport with people in which they bring you sorts of things. But at the same time, you must also give people who are obeying you and vassals, you have to give them something yourself. So the gift-giving becomes one of the most interesting aspects of the Maori document, how one thing has to be uh, given so other things can be taken, back and forth, back and forth. And one of the most interesting aspects of these letters is how precisely choreographed all these exchanges are. You just don't send a person a gift that you think is nice, you have to give them something equivalent that they will give you back. You see, so you cannot, you don't, you don't dare give someone something too uh, uh, not valuable enough for what he has given you. You see, 
So all these things are highly choreographed and worked out. And just to find out exactly how a person ends up creating a sense of themselves as a king is very important. The other thing that I try to talk about is how they establish relationships with other nations. Now, in those days, you have to know um, the metaphors that were used were kingship metaphors, which means that kings who are a, uh, ruling in a very major city would consider another king reigning in another major city to be a brother. But kings who have a lower status and a smaller city, they have to be their sons. So that when you see the word son, when someone says to my son, it means he's talking to someone who's inferior. And if you see someone to my father, it means he's talking to someone who is superior. Hmm. So this vocabulary sounds Mickey Mouse, except if you don't follow it exactly, you can be in deep trouble. We have a number of letters in which one king wanted to use the term brother to another one, and that king is shocked. How could you? <laughs> you you're nothing. How could you? How could you even think of that? You see. So basically, this whole game, even though you have disturbers and chaotic. It was chaotic in its own little organized ballet. Everyone knew their role, and everyone knew how to, to, to place it. Okay, so that is one. The other thing also is you establish a relationship. And to establish a relationship, you have to exchange uh, not only diplomats, but you have to write speaking. And that's one of the most wonderful, wonderful aspects of the Mari material because that age of diplomacy is so well developed in that city. We know the various stages that took place. All through these letters, the various stages that took place between, let us say, two kings of equal power, how they created a treaty. And they would send diplomats to the other city and they would Speak to that. Uh, the diplomats will say to the other king, "What are the expectations of the king who has sent them?" If it's agreed upon, then they will take oath on the gods. They will have all sorts of ritual accompanying it, and then they will send back the diplomat. And the diplomat comes to the previous king and he says, "This is what he has accepted to do." And the, the other king will look into the terms, and he says, well, I don't like what he has done there. So the diplomat goes back back and forth until they get settled the thing. And at that point, then they write treaty text, which tells you, this is what you do, this is what I do, this is what I do, and we don't do this, and we do this, and we don't do this. And if you don't do this, then may the God do this, and da 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 That is a formal treaty, and that is exchange at the end. And part of the final act very often involve establishing a real family relationship because these people are talking about brothers and and, and, and father and son and all these things as a diplomatic term, but they try to establish also consanguinity. So what happens is you, you have dynastic marriages. So at that point, a king will usually try to marry a daughter of the other king. Now, here again, it's completely choreographed ballet. If the other king is more powerful, then he can give his daughter to that 
person with whom he is trying to have a relationship. Daughters always marry below themselves. Interesting. And the exchange was such that diplomats were running back and forth, back and forth to establish all the terms of their marriage. And that's also the glory of the Mari tablet. Because in the case of a number of these dynastic marriages, we have a good number of texts that dealt with all the details of how they went back and forth to try to establish how it will be all worked out. We have especially the marriage of two uh, princesses to two kings, different times, like one after the other, in which case one of them comes to Mari and is so unhappy because her husband already is so busy with other women. She's so unhappy that she's bored out of her mind. <laughs> we find her in the middle of the day going to the outside court and dancing with her girlfriends. As a result, she gets sunstroke, and the person in charge of the harem is absolutely panicky. What is he going to tell the king about his new bride? So we have all these letters back and forth about this event that has happened. But I want to read to you one little text to give you the impression that these people are not are not just using their children for nothing. Uh, I want to read to you this little letter that tells you about what one king said when he is sending his daughter to marry another king. Okay? Yes, let's hear it. This is the this is the king of Katna in Syria, who is sending his daughter named Baltun. Uh, it could be her title, but uh, Baltun uh, to marry a king of Mari named Yasma. He tells him the following: I am placing in your lap my flesh and my future. The handmaid, my daughter, that I give you. May God make her attractive to you. I am placing in your lap my flesh and future for this house has now become yours, and the house of Mari has now become mine. Whatever you desire, just write me, and I will give it to you. All over my land, whatever the king has requested, I myself have never held it back. Why is it that whatever I desire from the king would you think of not giving to me? Uh, let him let him fulfill my request as I fulfill yours. Well, I read it slightly differently from what the original, but just because it can be complicated and tell you names that would not mean much. But basically, these people were not just getting rid of children. They were really trying to establish new bonds. As it happened, this is that woman who was not very particularly happy. She uh, got herself sunstroke. But we have other dynastic marriages, which were absolutely delightful. Uh, in this case, the king named Zimri Linton, one of the last kings of Mari, got married to the daughter of the king of Aleppo, my hometown. That's right. And uh, her name is Shittum, and she turned out to be the uh, proverbial biblical woman of valor. She comes into... The marriage, she's probably, I don't know how old she is, maybe 17, 18, I don't know. He is already married, he has children, he has daughters. But um, uh, when she moves into the palace, slowly but surely, her presence, 
her capacity, her ability just makes her rise above many. And by the time the, the body tablet and she is already in full control of the palace when her husband is not there. She is really a remarkable woman. Her name is Shiptu. But um, I have used the information on the various steps it took to get this woman, Shiptu, to become the bride of Zimrilin, the diplomatic exchanges, the uh, exchange of bride wealth. That is what a husband gives, a future husband gives to the bride, the dowry what the father gives to his daughter and the various gifts that are exchanged. I have used this material to recreate what in fact we have from the biblical narrative about the marriage of Isaac when he married Rebecca. <clears throat> he too married into a larger, probably more prestigious family. And uh, Rebecca did not have to leave her home, but she consented to come exactly like she too consented to come. And she comes to marry this uh, Isaac, who turns out to be a very good husband, uh, just like the William was. So we have a lot of information. Oh, one more thing. Please. We also have uh, a lot of letters exchanged by the daughter of this King Zimrilin. And he also had his daughter marry vassals or administrators, top administrators, Again, he never could marry, have his daughter marry someone who's higher level than him, but he can marry them to people almost equal but lower than him. Okay, so in one case, there was a very loyal vassal named Hayasumu from a city called Ilam Sura, <clears throat> and he had given him a daughter named Shimatum. For some reason or another, she was not able to bear Later on in some of the letters, we get the impression that she was also possibly epileptic. So she, there was a problem there. So Zimbrilin decided to do something that is not terribly wise on his part, but he gave another daughter of his, a woman named Kirum, to the uh, king, the same king. And uh, uh, that was a very sad, sad moment because uh, Kirum, we have a good number of hers. When you read her letters, you have the impression of a woman who slowly but surely is losing her mind, and mainly because when she got there, no sooner did she get there than her sister Shimatun, this is disputed by some scholars, but I think that I have it probably correctly, Shimatun gives birth to twins, so the problem of not having children is resolved for her, and so now she is the main woman in the court, so her sister, Kirum, who had come in, cannot be top person anymore, even though she does have children. So the story of this breakup of her mind, I don't know if that's the right term, but just slowly but surely realizing, at the end, we have an incredible scene in which she comes before her husband and he tears portion of her clothing and she tears portion of it, which is uh, symbolic of the disruption of the marriage. Mm. And she goes back home. We lose sight of her. We don't know exactly what happened to her. Likely she went back home. And, uh, who knows? We also have uh, the story of another daughter of Zimrilim. He had given her 
and ride to one of the major leaders who helped him come to power. But uh, she goes there and she seems to be happy, who knows, but she doesn't have children. And that husband of hers, for one reason or another, we don't know, I think probably just naturally or from some sickness, dies. So uh, uh, this woman, rather than coming home, her father gives her away to another one of his vassals. Now this vassal happens to be not a particularly friend of the man who died. So that was not also a wise choice. And this woman goes to this court and she's not particularly cared for. And we have the status letters about her sitting in the corner and saying, I just grabbing my cheek and going crazy. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but the point of it is that she feels abandoned. She doesn't know what to do to make matter worse. Her husband, whom uh, the king thought he's making a better vassal out of him. Her husband really was always plotting to break away and uh, join another major leader of the time. So, in fact, he does that. And by the time we finish with the Mari archive, uh, the king Zimbalim takes a, his army and he punishes him by by destroying his town and taking over his whole harem and bringing it back. But what happened to this girl? We don't know. We think she probably was taken away. Uh, as a hostage by this husband of hers. And who knows? I worry about her still, even now. I know that she's <laughs> somewhere in the mountains of, uh, <laughs> of Syria. <laughs> Those are amazing stories. You mentioned before that the king had something like 100 messengers. How, At least. How big, then, is this city-state population-wise? Well, that's the hardest thing to 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 reconstruct how much how strong a population because it depends on density and so forth. Okay. But we have a lot of lists from their administrative list that gives you um, uh, what is the word when you just keep lists of people, you just keep record of people. Like a census, uh, not, a, not a census really, but more or less. The, uh, I don't know. Just they take account of who is what's doing what. And they will tell you who is married to whom and when, da, 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 da. Okay, so if you take these records, lots and lots of them, and you try to put them together as one a wonderful scholar in Spain did, uh, you get the impression that it's probably anywhere between twenty-five to 40,000 people. That's not much, but that's the town itself and its immediate surroundings. The king of uh, of uh, Mari actually has control of the number of towns along the Euphrates, and then if you go up the Euphrates, you you meet a river, you know, uh, and and along that river that comes all the way to the north, then you will have uh, even more towns that are under his control. So if you put it all together, I don't know if I can estimate correctly, but. Uh, I don't know, maybe about a couple hundred thousand, maybe more than a quarter of a million people. If I'm telling this number and someone laughs, it's, they're probably correct too because it's very hard to reconstruct. Huh. Right. Um, people tell you, for example, that Nineveh, the town of Syria, had uh, 300,000 people, which is amazing. The density must have been more than Gaza even. That's unbelievable. So uh, it's hard to estimate. But uh, the other thing, though, which is interesting, is when we have information about uh, military involvement, 
they can sometimes put together as many as thirty thousand people in a in a campaign. So they, they must have they must have in addition to the people who live in urban centers, you have tribal people who participate in these type of things. So there is one text in fact that speaks about sixty thousand people being involved in an army. This is almost larger than any army except for Napoleon when he went to Moscow. I don't know if that's correct, but it, it's amazing. I think it's hyperbolic, though. I, I think it's uh, just using just big numbers at this stage. Who knows? And we have also a lot of records about what happened in military. I have a whole chapter devoted to that. How people are, how armies are raised, what, how are they divided, who leads them and what. But the interesting thing here is to remember that in 1800 BC, or 1750 BC, the horse has not become the uh, domesticated animal of later time, let's say of the Assyrian time, or the uh, famous um, empire of Egypt uh, during the uh, new middle kingdom and late kingdom, actually during the, uh, uh, yes, the, the late kingdom. We don't have anything like that. So as a result, most warfare was skirmishes, except that the major group of people that when you collect them to go to war, very often they're intending to go and besiege cities. Most major war took place outside of city, uh, city gates, fortification. And so an army comes there and plunks itself there, stays there, and uh, chances are good that it will not succeed because if you have access to water one way or another, you can survive for a very long time. And we have a number of letters that are absolutely wonderful about someone who's trying to besiege another city. He wanted to take advantage of it and besiege it before this King Zimrilim, who was his, uh, his uh, uh, suzerain, comes and helps the other king was also a vassal of the same king. That's great. <laughs> so it's a very funny little situation, but what happens here is he brings his army there, and he's trying to act fast so he can take over the city. At first he tries to bamboozle it into uh, giving up because it's wrong and so forth and so on, and then we have this wonderful discussion between people in the, on top of the fortification and him telling him, hey, you're full of baloney, we don't believe you, you're out of your mind, let's show you what we can do. And then in the middle of the night, they would make sorties and uh, put fire to some of his camps. We also think all this is told to us in a very long letter that is full of life. And then at one point, the person outside is so desperate because he's afraid that the siege is going to be broken by when, when Tim Rilim comes back, that he goes to the wall and he tells them, who's he says, he takes his own soldiers and he dressed them as if they are soldiers of, of another person. Huh? And he says, look, you expect, yeah, you expect this, this person to come and help you. Now look at his soldier. They're helping me. So give up. <laughs> we know that you are full of baloney. We know that you have just dressed these people. Get away from here. You know, so it's all been told to us in letters. And it's really amazing. You can make HBO movies out of them. That really is fascinating. How about giving us a word now about religion in Mari? Was there a central temple or many temples 
Uh, was there a primary god or goddess like Ishtar? Well, uh, it's a polytheistic system. Many, many gods. Many cities will have one god, two gods, three gods. Most of them will have one major god that is the god of that city. But then, the wealthier you are, the more prosperous you are as a city, the more gods you can take care of. There is a wonderful letter from the king before the last one, Zimri, they make this king, his name is Mahadu, in which his father was the top gun in the region, uh, really a, a remarkable leader who was also pretty, uh, you know, uh, money actually. He loved uh, to put people down and control them. Name Shamsiadu. Okay, so this Shamsiadu writes his son, who's king at Mari now, yes, Mahadu, I tell him. I hear that you're trying to spend money to create God. He says, how could you do that? You don't even have enough money to create the God. And when you have them, how are you going to take care of them? How are you going to furnish for them? How are you going to do all this and this and this? Don't do it. Don't do it. In other words, if you think you're a hot shot and you're a king, the way you try to show it is by enlarging the number of gods that can come under your auspices. Because a palace, There'll be in, an, in a city, there'll be many temples, but in the palace itself, there'll be the temple that is the shrine for the gods who are the most protective of that king. This is a bit like you have in the Bible. People forget that the temple of Solomon is actually within his palace. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and although he was only worshiping one god, in fact, that made it even more difficult for other people to, to, to worship that God, except at the coming to Jerusalem, where in the temple was, where in the palace was the temple of God, you see? Mm -hmm. But here, you have many temples, except that in the palace you would have your own. And Zimari was wealthy enough to be able to take care of many, many gods. And especially during festivals, gods from outside come to visit other gods, and they had to be taken care of. We have quite a bit. We have lists and lists of, uh, of gods, but it's not a pantheon, because the, the idea of a pantheon does not seem to work in the ancient Near East. It's the number of gods that are, uh, that you can, you, that, that can be great, uh, that can protect you because you're good to them, you see? Right. All right. So you have. In Mari, then, you would have a certain number of gods who are worshipped, especially gods in the palaces. Most of the gods in the palaces uh, are women, female goddesses. They're goddesses because the palace itself uh, was not, especially in later time, it was not the choicest place to be. In fact, uh, the people who remained in it when the palace in the evening, they closed the gates of the palace. The people who remained in it were mostly menial, the people taking care of things. The king, of course, would, would have his own quarter there too, but basically, most people who worked at the palace, who had any importance, lived outside of the palace and they had their own places. So it's the opposite of what you tend to think about how palaces are very, very prestigious and so forth. They were, but uh, there were other things that people looked for. Okay, so. A good amount of information we have to add from the administrative, administrative text is to tell us about how they took care of the paraphernalia of the gods. 
you had to prepare clothing for them. You had to prepare um, various uh, um, representations of them. You had to make sure that they are kept in good shape. Uh, and quite a bit of expense was uh, spent to do that. And then we have uh, important rituals that took place in the palace. We have a very large text about the ritual for one specific deity, and that is Ishtar. They could have had a ritual for other deities too. In fact, they did. But in this one, we have it preserved. And the choreography, again, is very important. This was not just people coming in and saying, oh, I praise you, Ishtar, you're terrific, I love you, I thought you'd take care of me. No, you presented a whole, almost like an opera. You can be various people would come in at different times, the king would do this, the king will sit there, and when the king stood up, the other people did that, the harp played that, and then this, this, and this, and this. Everything was worked out into the detail, because what you are representing here is a pageant for the deity, you see. Unfortunately, we have only a few of those things, and only one of them is, is fuller than the others. The others are more fragmentary. But the life of the palace, the life, the religious life was very intense. In fact, Zimri Lim himself was very, very pious. In fact, maybe all the kings were pious, but he was especially pious, and uh, he tended to really constantly ask all the people who worked for him in other towns too, if they hear of anything that the God, the messages that the God is sending, please send it to me because he was very much in, interested, wanting to know what the gods want from him. And as a result of that, during the reign of this specific king, maybe because of his special piety, and maybe other reasons too, a good number of the documents that we have that deal with how to uh, recognize what the God wants from you come from his reign. Among them are prophecies. Among them are dreams, record, uh, record of dreams, of visions, and also a lot and lot of divinations. I will mention, I'll say, say something about that in a second. But let me get back to this prophecy first. Up until we got the Mari tablet, and you'll have to tell me when I have to end because I, you know, I can speak a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really a remarkable thing. Well, up until the time when we got the Mari tablet, we thought that prophecy was mostly a biblical phenomenon. Because after all, if you only have one God who is true, the only true God is the Hebrew God, what else? Why would there be prophecies from people who have who have no idea of that God? You see, right? And then we found in those days in Assyria, we found that time, you know, from the eighth century, some prophecies and so on. But basically, we thought that this was a phenomenon that most widely known to us because of the Bible. Then came the Mari tablet, and we have a few dozens letters that are prophetic. Now, the people who were receiving these messages, they're in Akkadian, they're called Apilum, which means the answerer. Um, they would come, when they get the message, they would go 
to an administrator because the king very often is far away or because of other reasons, they would go to a top administrator or the wife of the king or the mother of the king or the sister of the king. And they will say, such and such deity had told me this or that. And at that point, they will call a scribe and the scribe will record what the deity is supposed to have said through this messenger, through this appeal, and they send it to the king. The message could be varied. One of them, for example, says, don't build such a temple. If you build it, it will sink. Remind you of the time of David when he wanted to build a temple. Or uh, don't listen to such and such because they are lying, you know. Uh, they are false, or they're paying only false, something like Jeremiah, you know. So don't do this, don't do that. But also they would say, don't forget to send me such a thing. Uh, you know, I really need such and such. But every now and then, you would get a prophecy that comes not from the temple itself of the Mari Palace, but it comes from other quarters outside of the Mari Palace. One of the most interesting ones, let me see if I can find it for you because I'm going to read it to you yet. It is one of the most wonderful ones comes from Aleppo, very far away from Mari, given the time. Um, but it is, of course, the city of uh, ship to the wife of Zimrilim. This is a prophet from Aleppo, uh, the prophet who is writing, who, is, uh, who went to a messenger, a diplomat of the king who lived in that area, and told him, here is a message to send to the king. I'm going to read it to you, okay? Thank you. I'll skip a couple of lines here because they're broken, but I will I'll read it. Thus says at Adu is the god of Aleppo. Adu is Hadad in Hebrew uh, text. If you read about the god Hadad, not quite the same king, but it's the same name or less. Thus says Adu of Aleppo. I had given all the land to Yahdunim, your father, and by means of my weapons he had no opponent. When he abandoned me, the land that I had given him, I gave it to his enemy, Samsiati. Then, when Samsi Adu did something wrong, I wanted to bring the kingship back to you. I brought you back on your father's throne, and I handed you the weapon with which I battled against the sea. Yum, you know, the sea. I rubbed you with oil from my luminous radiance so that no one could stand up to you. Now listen to my only wish. Whenever anyone appeals to you for judgment, saying, I am aggrieved, be there to decide his case and to give him satisfaction. This is all what I desire of you. And then he continues, when you go out to war, don't do so without consulting the omens. When I am the one standing at my omens, then proceed. If otherwise, do not come out of your door. So this is a god from a distant city. Not particularly the god of Jimrelim, but he feels the urge to contact that king of Mari to tell him that if he wants his protection, he needs to be just 
and treat people ethically. This is amazing. This is a comes as close as possible to the prophecies that we have from the Bible, not asking for a shrine to be built for him. He is saying, all I want you to do is become the king that people ought to have. Now, when the king gets this prophecy, what does he do with it? Unfortunately, we don't have any notes that says, and King Zimrilim received this prophecy, and he uh, fasted and said, thank you, God, for sending me this. I'm going to be nice to everyone, including uh, everyone, you know, including my kids, everyone. No. no, we don't know what he does with it, but we do know that there is a problem always about prophecy or dreams, whether they could be believed or not. You know, if you go into the Bible in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, that is discussing all the time about how can you, when do you believe a prophet when he tells you I'm a prophet and when you don't. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's not so clear cut how you do it. Here, the Mesopotamian had a better system, they thought. The way they did it, is when someone has said that they have received a dream or a prophecy, the first thing you want to make sure is that, in fact, there was a prophecy to be had or there was a dream to be had. So the first thing you do is you take some symbol of the person who spoke or who had a dream and you put them to a test. What kind of a test? In Mesopotamia, for them, the most important uh, way, instrument, by which the God could tell you something was, now this is going to sound strange, was to look into the liver of a sheep. Hmm. You say, what? Yes. The notion was that when you have a sheep, and you put your hand on it, or you transfer your question to it one way or another, and you sacrifice that sheep, the gods at that point step into the sheep's intestines or liver signs that will tell a person who reads them of an example that looked similar and that had a specific message, right? Right. But they kept listening of all these type of divination that had occurred before the sign, and they correlate them to the signs that are being seen now. So if King Zimbalim received this message, he would take it to his diviner. The diviner will sacrifice an animal and will look into it to corroborate that what the message was was in fact true, because the idea is the more different ways the God give you a message, whether it's in a dream or a prophecy or this or that, the more true it becomes. You have to ascertain the truthfulness of that message. It was elaborate and it took time. They could not accept prophecy just like that. Otherwise, someone can come in and say, uh, the God such and such says, resign. You just have to know how. In fact, in ancient Israel, you take someone like Ahab, King Ahab, he had 400 prophets. And when they came to tell him things, he always had another prophet to ask. This way he could decide whether to follow through or not. But there are also all sorts of 
information there about birth, life cycles, adulthood, uh, burials. We have letters on every topic you can imagine. And uh, if you have time, just don't buy it if you don't want to, but try to see if you can find it in the library and read it. And before we let you go, Jack, maybe you can let us know about some current projects you're working on. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I have a dual life, if you can call it that. I also work on biblical material. You may have gotten the notion, um, some comments that I've given you. And in the past, I have written commentaries, one to the book of Ruth, one to the book of Jonah. And about in, uh, two years ago, I published a, first, uh, a commentary, the Anchor Bible commentary on the first 12th chapter of the book of Judges. This was just absolutely wonderful because it's full of narratives and stories and what have you. And I was able to not uh, compare them to, to Mari, but try to use Mari as illustration of events, of ways people approach things. And now I'm currently trying to finish that book um, into Samson these days. I'll go a bit faster, I guess, as I go on. But uh, basically, that's what I'm working on. And I hope to find to get it done one of these days. Jack, it's been fascinating getting to know the people of Mari through this talk. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you for letting me visit with so many people now. And I hope, uh, again, to get responses from people who are interested. I can always be approached and ask questions if they are interested. Wonderful. All right. We've been speaking with Jack M. Sasson about his recent book, From the Mari Archives. Again, that's published by Eisen Browns in 2015. You'll find a link to that book on our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Thank you for listening in, and until next time, goodbye.